If you have your Bibles, we're in, we're in the book of Mark. We are in the book of Mark chapter 12. And we are, ironically, of all things, we are in the last week of Jesus. We're in the last week of Jesus. And so the timing of this is only something that God could do. And last week I talked about the intentional focus of Jesus. The fact that there was this flaming intentionality about Jesus, his focus on going to the cross four times. He's predicted his death. Uh, and the third time on the Monday of the first week, the first day of the final week of his life, he actually gave details about uh, where he's going and what's going to happen to him. There's just a fierce intentionality about everything Jesus is doing. G.K. Chesterton said this about Jesus. The life of Jesus went as swift and straight as a thunderbolt, almost in the manner of a military march, certainly in the manner of the quest of a hero moving to his achievement or his doom. Sometimes we forget that the purpose of Christ was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. And he is facing foe after foe after foe every day dealing with scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders and political leaders that oppose him. And men and women, you will be opposed in your Christian life. You'll be opposed in your own family. If you walk with Christ... You'll have opposition in your home. You'll have opposition at work. Amy, you'll have opposition in the political arena. You that are in the military, you will have opposition. You that are businessmen and businesswomen, you will have opposition. This opposition is because God is at work to strengthen you in the intentionality of your own life that is actually driving back darkness. When, when David took that harp in Saul's court, Saul is filled with a demonic spirit, and when he begins to play, it drives off darkness. Church worship is to drive off darkness. Jehoshaphat, going into battle, sent the worshipers before him to drive off darkness. Fill your house with worship. We talked about Jesus saying as he went through the temple with an intentionality and an anger and a violent anger as he went through the temple on the first day in Jerusalem. And he said this, this house has become a place of merchandise, and I call this forth as a house of prayer for the nations. Men and women, you're a house of prayer for the nations. Each one of you are a house of prayer. And with that intentionality and focus, you will drive back darkness in your life. So we came to this passage last week, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. I want to I canvas it again. It, it's too important. Not be camped for a little while. Verse 28 of Mark 12. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? 
And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I shared last week the story of talking to a Muslim recently in an airport terminal. He was there. We started this conversation. And in the midst of that, somehow we came back to the second coming of Christ. And he said, yeah, we Muslims believe there's going to be a Jesus. There's going to be a Messiah that's going to come forth. He's going to be a false Messiah. And he's going to have a prophet with him. And this prophet's going to introduce this false Messiah. And this false Messiah is going to uh, gain control of the whole world. And he's a precursor. He's prophetic of the true Messiah. But he's not the true Messiah. He's kind of this... He's this anti-Messiah. Does any of this sound familiar? And we kept talking about the last days, and it was so similar. And I said, well, what do you do with the shame of passage? The Lord is one God. Yes, the Lord is one. He said, we believe that. But here's our problem with you Christians. You believe in this, this, this three God thing. You believe in three gods. And he didn't remember it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He said three gods. And here we see in this passage that Jesus says, This is first. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Elohim, one. But then he says, Your God, Echad, is a compound plural. There's this, there's this prophetic word there of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I believe what God's going to do in the latter days for those that are true Messiah seekers among Mormons and among Muslims and among Indians and all across the world, God's going to reveal himself as the God who is Echad, the God of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're going to have a revelation. It's happening right now in the Muslim world through dreams and visions. We prayed for Saeed so many times and Saeed's sister is close friends with Anna. And Anna was out in D.C., in the Virginia area a couple weeks ago. And Anna had the opportunity to meet Saeed's mother. And she was talking about this dream that she had. And then Saeed's sister, this dream that she had. And so Muslims are getting saved through dreams and visions. And it's not, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's not through a revelation based on a rational argument. It's a revelation based on a supernatural encounter with the living God. God's doing that today. And then he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And I shared last week the idea here in the Hebrew is out of your heart. So let me reread it. You shall love the Lord your God out of your heart, out of your soul, out of your mind, out of your strength. And this is the first commandment. So men and women, it's always inner going outward. It is a work of the heart. The problem with churches today, the problem with religion in general and the, and the stripe of Christianity today is that what we've done is we've painted this picture of a religion that's somehow outward in instead of inward out. Because it's the heart that God is looking for. And so he says here, the first and great commandment is that you would love me out of your soul, out of your mind, and out of your strength, and out of your heart. Church, Jesus wants your heart. That's why we talk about building wholehearted disciples of Jesus. 
And there's, and there's so many ways that happens. But the best way, the most powerful way, the most lasting way that that happens, listen to me, intentional relationships. And even with the fracturing of our families, the church still stands. The church still stands. We are a family. And that's why we talk about C groups and D groups. You need small groups. You need larger groups, but you need a place where intentional relationships are occurring. Because what do we do? We always move toward loneliness. We always move toward isolation. That's our natural bent. I don't care if you're a man or a woman, you tend toward isolation, but you're wired for relationships. You're wired for relationships. God placed that eternity in our hearts that we would have heart-to-heart relationships. And what Satan comes to do is say, you can't trust people anymore. Look what your dad did. Look what your mom did. Look what your best friend did. Look what that church did. And so we, we find this temptation to pull away. And yet Jesus says, the first and foremost commandment is love me out of your heart. We have to keep bearing our heart, church. We have to keep loving with our heart. And then it's with our mind and our soul and our strength. And so it's with the whole being. Augustine said it this way. Love God and do whatever you please. That's where everybody quotes him. Love God and do whatever you please. But it's not the whole quote. Here's what he said. Love God and do whatever you please, colon, For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. So this love of God is now where Jesus goes. Because we know in 1 John it says, In this is love that that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. And so you can't command someone to love you. You can't command someone to respect you. Love is always a response to something That someone has done in your life. And so Jesus speaking through John as he writes in that first epistle. Look it's not so much that we loved him. It's that he loved us first. And we're responding to that love. Loving God out of our heart is a response to God loving us from his heart. So recently had the opportunity to be up at a retreat in... uh, Buena Vista, and I was, I was asking God and seeking God about a number of things related to the church, and I'll just tell you, this, this is kind of a cool story. It's not really my main point, but it was on the same hike. I go hiking up early in the morning on a prayer hike, and I'm up there, and I'm saying, Lord, I need confirmation that I'm on the right track with the road, that, we're, that this, is, this is of you. I, need, I, just, I started having all these doubts about stuff. This is in November of last year. And I'm walking on this trail and this guy comes walking up to me and he says, this is the road. This is the road. And I said, what did you say? He said, is this the road? 
And I go, what are you talking about, man? And he said, well, I mean, there's some kind of a, then he said trail. There's a trail. It's called the Continental Divide Trail or it's a road or something. And I go, I don't know. And he's okay, see ya. And he took off. I had just prayed that prayer. So I go up into the hills and I'm, and I'm praying about all this other stuff. And as I'm walking down back to the camp, the Spirit of God speaks to me almost in an audible voice. And he says, Steve, I love you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength. He said, I love you with all of my heart. Beloved, Jesus loves you. Every one of you in this room with all of his heart. And that's what the week leading to Calvary is all about. Jesus, as he journeys toward Calvary, is... is Living this love from all of his heart for you. With all of his strength. With all of his soul and with all of his mind. He loves you that much. You're beloved. You're beloved. And the second is like it, he says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And so the greatest 32 words in the English language, are right here. The greatest 32 words in all of the Bible are, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. By the way, this is the New King James Version. There's 32 words. I don't know about the NIV. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there's no other commandment greater than these. And so we love. You already love yourself. Love others with that same love. The wholehearted love of 32 words. Verse 32. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all of the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all of the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. So so Jesus saw the sincerity of the man. He saw that he understood at at least the mental and heart level. And you guys know that Soon after, Jesus goes to the cross and is resurrected. And then with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, many priests, many scribes were saved. And I believe that this is one of them, that this guy got saved later and came to know the Lord. He he seemed to understand that the core of the gospel is love and that the heart of the gospel is the heart. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple... How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord, this is kind of interesting, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself 
calls him Lord, how is it then that he is his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Now, this is interesting. Jesus is quoting from one of the great and most quoted messianic psalms in all of scripture, Psalm 110. And if you look at Psalm 110, you see this emphasis of the Lord speaking to David, who they call Lord, and they call, and they call Jesus the son of David. And so the, the common people understand this, and the scribes do not. And he said, how can you call him the son of David when he is David's Lord? Jesus is proclaiming his messianic personhood, his deity. And here's what's interesting is that he's at the son of David is that, is that human side of Jesus. Because literally, men and women, he is, he is a son of David. In other words, he is of the lineage, lineage of David from the womb of Mary. And so he comes forth both being, being divine and human. Muslims struggle with that. Jews struggle with that. Some of us struggle with that. Don't meditate on it too long or you'll struggle with it. But the reality is, born of a woman, this was a huge issue in the Middle Ages as it related to Jesus being fully, completely God and fully and completely man. And so he is challenging his Messiahship not as a political leader, but as the Lord of David and the Son of David. And then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now you might want to highlight, bracket, underline it. These seem to be things that Jesus hates. The message reads this way. Watch out for the religion scholars. They love to walk around in academic gowns, preening in the radiance of public flattery, basking in prominent positions, sitting at the head table at every church function. Probably got a little bit of a little gut. Been going to a lot of potlucks. Guys, I'm from the South. I'm from Georgia. And I have a lot of friends that still live in Georgia. I haven't lost all of them yet. And mark my word. If you go into Facebook. And you see anybody from the South, go to the photos. All right? And when you go in the photos, tell me if not, it, almost every, if not at least every other photo has food in it. <laughs> We live for food in the South. I, I mean, my brother 
probably has memorized every all-you-can-eat place in Athens, Georgia. So they're at the head of the table of every church function. And all the time they're exploiting the weak and the helpless. The longer their prayers, the worse they get. But they'll pay for it in the end. I see five things that God hates here. Can I give them to you? I see five things that God hates in this passage. Let me read them to you. Number one, prideful about appearance and position. Number one, prideful about appearance and position. I'm so glad that the only people who wear ties here are visitors. Uh, we don't wear ties. I mean, you don't even know. I mean, you don't, you don't know anybody's socioeconomic status in this church. I think that's cool. It's awesome. Because we tend toward pride about appearance and position. We all do. Number two, flattery from people. Flattery from people. The scribes loved it. Don't flatter. You can compliment and encourage, but you don't need to flatter. And when people flatter you and they gush over you, man, run. Run. Number three. Control over people through religion. Control over people through religion. Number four, posing and pretending to be something that you're not. Posing and pretending to be something that you're not. The church and many times pastors should have an Oscar trophy right next to their podium. Because you fake it so much. It's almost like the job description is to be a big faker. Let's not be that way here, okay? I hate posing and pretending. And then number five, and this is the most important of all of them. Injustice toward those that are weak and helpless. Injustice toward those who are weak and helpless. God hates that. Taking advantage of people. So Jesus says, first of all, love me out of your whole heart. Love me out of your whole mind. Love me out of your whole strength. And then he turns to the scribes and he says, here's the problem I have with you. You have pretense. You pose. You're using people. You're hurting people. And in the process of spending so much time on all your religious games... You forget the people that need the Lord the most, and those are the weak and helpless. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and he saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So church, the treasury was located in the court of women, right outside the main temple area. Offerings were placed in 13 chests that were shaped like trumpets. Rich people called attention to themselves and would usually throw large sums of coins to make a lot of noise when they gave. And then here comes this poor woman, probably shabbily dressed, she puts in two mites. And a mite in circulation in Palestine at that time was worth about one-eighth of a cent. 
And Jesus sees, what does he see? What does he see in her? What does he see in her? Q&A time. What does he see in her? Yeah, that's what he sees. He sees her heart. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. God is looking at our hearts. Now, someone could have come and given a million drachma. And if it's in the spirit of the heart of a love and passion of wholeheartedness for Jesus, he would have said the same thing. But I believe Jesus is making a contrast here to the fact that we tend, do we not, to look at the outer self of our own lives and Jesus, God, and we see this especially in First and Second Samuel as God looks at David. He looks at the heart. That's the resume. That's the interview of God. That's God looking into our hearts. How's your heart tonight? How's your heart tonight? Give, men and women, give from a love from your heart. And so do we not, we tend to look at someone's outward behavior and addictions, um, issues, morality. Those are certainly important. Because you can ruin your life based on those kind of habit patterns. But we go to that only because of a dry heart. And so to go to God on a regular basis and say, God, my heart's not doing well today. I'm short with people. I'm distant with people. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. Take that to the Lord in prayer. Take that to Him. Give Him your heart. So He called His disciples to Himself and He said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had her whole livelihood. This woman is wholehearted. This is worship. This woman gave more than the rich because she gave all that she had. The rich gave out of their surplus and she gave out of her poverty. I found over the years in, in raising support as a missionary, being a pastor, that there's a pretty clear correlation that the more you have the less you give the more you have the less you give but the more you love the more you give the more you have usually people start looking at how much they're giving and they actually start giving less but the more you love the more you can't wait to give isn't that exciting Because God working within the surplus of what we have calls us even to sacrifice. I read one commentator who said this. He said, God is not looking so much at what we give as how much we actually keep. And she, had, and she gave all that she had. 
John Wesley once said, make all you can, give all you can, and save all you can. I like that. Make all you can, give all you can, and save all you can. Jesus has a friend. She has his heart, and she's wholehearted in her giving. Let me say this to you that are in different places financially in your own journey with God. Just start where you're at. Just start where you, uh, where you are and do what you can. And let God lead you in your giving. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool! Fool? Wow. This night, your soul will be required of you. Then those whose will, those things be which you have provided. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, when I read this, all I could think about was what is the greatest treasure? I'm talking about people treasure. I'm talking about, I'm talking about things. What is the greatest treasure we have at the road. What is the most important treasure we have at the road? What do you think? What is the greatest treasure we have at the road? Don't say God because I, we are, that's a given. God, Jesus, of course. But I'm talking about resources. What's the greatest resource we have at the road what each other all right good start ooh ooh what'd you say children I believe that the greatest responsibility any of us that are older have is the discipleship of the children here at the road starting with your own family so this is what Jesus said Jesus called a little child. And this is right in the, in the context. The disciples say, no, they can't come to Jesus. So Jesus calls him to himself. He set this little guy in the midst of them. And he said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children. Okay, you're supposed to keep becoming like little children, you guys. Because there's something precious. There's something beautiful. There's something actually unique about Children. This is what he says. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm competitive. I was born competitive. I was beating my three years younger brother in marbles before I even started school. I trounced him. I got my brother so mad one time that he took a football helmet and he threw it so hard on the pavement that he cracked it. I antagonized everybody I was around because I was competitive. 
And I read this kind of as a competitor, and it says, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the key to greatness. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. And it was Mother Teresa who said, every time I look into the eyes of a child, I see Jesus. Everybody look at me. Does anybody recognize this hat? Sean, do you recognize this hat? It's an IDF hat. This is an Israeli Defense Forces hat that I picked up in Israel in 2008. And just as a sidelight, my brother um, emailed me the other day seeing if we wanted to do an Is another Israel trip in 2016. So we're kind of looking at that. We might, I might put out an interest questionnaire with you guys. This is an Israeli Defense Forces hat. Now, why am I wearing this? First of all, it's very comfortable. And I feel like, especially this week, after what happened with the uh, prime minister, I think it's appropriate that I wear it. It's because in 19, because of the war of 1948, in 1949, all Israelis were conscripted into the military, and it was called the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. Women and men over 18, everybody was conscripted into the army. Women two years, men three years. Actually, it was Six months less than that back then, but in 1967 it changed and they added six months to it. Did some research. In the purpose of the IDF, it reads, to protect and provide for the welfare and safety of every family in Israel. To protect and provide for the welfare and safety of every family in Israel. At the road, we have committed ourselves to building wholehearted disciples of Jesus. And we were having a discussion the other day about nursery. Finding nursery workers, disciples, servant disciples for the nursery, for the road. Because it's growing. We've got two problems. One, you guys keep doing stuff that creates babies. <laughs> and number two, you keep coming here. Alright? So it keeps growing. Keep it up, by the way. It's a good thing. On every front. Just make sure you're married. Um, but we were having this discussion, and Melody Palsky said, I, I, I don't like the word nursery. Nursery sounds like we're having some kind of daycare or some kind of babysitting service for the road. What we're really trying to do is disciple people, right? We said, yeah. So we're going to call it preschool D group. Hello. Why not? Today we had a middle school D group at our house. And a number of you guys came. We had our first discipleship group for middle schoolers. How many of you are in D groups right now? Raise your hand. Look at that. Most of you in the church are in a D group. So we're going to have a preschool D group. Here's the deal. I want all of us conscripted to form a defense force against demons in their lives to be a church where we love our kids so much that we will we will pour out in that role in some way shape or form so tonight my wife my beautiful blonde wife 
as you go to pick up your kids, is going to encourage you to find a slot to work with children. And we are going to build the best children's ministry possible in this church. And we're going to take kids from birth till some of you who are super old to disciple. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And may it start right here with our youngest. Not building Jesus followers, but Jesus disciples. Not building spiritual consumers, but servant contributors. Everybody look at me. We don't, everybody remember at the road, we don't use the word volunteer. The only volunteers are in Tennessee. We have no volunteers here. We have servant disciples called to serve Christ as his disciples. Amen? All right.